The company Dynatrace provides intelligent observability, continuous automation, and causation-based AI to help cloud ops, DevOps, and SRE teams move faster, innovate more, and transform business outcomes. Dynatrace offers application performance monitoring, or APM. They also offer infrastructure monitoring, cloud automation, application security, and much more. While being an industry leader in simplifying complex cloud applications, Dynatrace is continuously innovating and bringing a wide array of solutions to the market. So who is Dynatrace for and what can it really do for software development and DevOps teams? In this episode, we're going to get to know Dynatrace a little bit better with their VP and Chief Technical Strategist and Head of Innovation Lab, Alois Reitbauer. Alois drives product innovation at Dynatrace and knows more about their products than most. We discuss the use cases and benefits of Dynatrace, as well as its involvement with open source projects. We go into a lot of history of Dynatrace. Dynatrace is a famous observability company. They came to market at a time when there was some revolution in observability, and it's actually a great story. I hope you enjoy it. Our first book is coming soon. Move Fast is a book about how Facebook builds software. It comes out July 6th, and... It's something we're pretty proud of. We've spent about two and a half years on this book, and it's been a great exploration of how one of the most successful companies in the world builds software. In the process of writing Move Fast, I was reinforced with regard to the idea that I want to build a software company, and I have a new idea that I'm starting to build. The difference between this company and the previous software companies that I've started is I need to let go of some of the responsibilities of software engineering daily. We're going to be starting to transition to having more voices on software engineering daily. And in the long run, I think this will be much better for the business because we'll have a deeper, more diverse voice about what the world of software entails. If you are interested in becoming a host, please email me, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. This is a paid opportunity, and it's also a great opportunity for learning and access and growing your personal brand. Speaking of personal brand, we are starting a YouTube channel as well. We'll start to air choice interviews that we've done in person at a studio, and these are high-quality videos that we're going to be uploading to YouTube, and you can subscribe to those videos at YouTube and find the Software Daily YouTube channel. Thank you for listening. Thank you for reading. I hope you check out Move Fast, and very soon, thanks for watching Software Daily. Alois, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I'd like to get into a discussion of Dynatrace as it is today and how the company has evolved from its initial product suite. Can you just start by telling me how Dynatrace got started and what the initial product set did? That's a very good question. I mean, Dynatrace has been around for a a very long time. So I've been with Dynatrace almost 14 years. So I'm not even like one of the first employees of the company. So initially we started building, well, as this name suggests tracing tools that were used or they were capable to be used in a production environment. So back then, there were tracing tools available. 
So this were the J2EE times back then, but most of them were pre-production only. So data collection and overhead was a big issue. So the big initial focus of Dynatories was, can we provide a tracing solution that you can't just use on your local developer machine and you can actually use in production? And that you can use in production in a way that it has low overhead, it's easy to install. So back then it was used, usually the case that you had to install rule files on the machines where you wanted to trace the overhead and sometimes it was really 20% overhead, so highly un unusable tools. And how Dynatrace emerged, it was really the first tool that gave developers this insight into production environments. Obviously then a lot of um, time passed by and we focused more and more on ops use cases, adding monitoring capabilities to Dynatrace, so targeting more the ops use cases while still having the tracing use case in mind. And then bringing everything um, together. And, and as we were doing this, the environments we were working in uh, were constantly growing. So I remember in the early days of, of Dynatrace 100 servers, so back then J2E servers, that was, that was a big environment. And, and then later on, suddenly there were like 1,000 or 10,000 servers. And today when we talk about containers, we suddenly start talking about millions of, of entities. So we saw this constant growth of entities and the environments, and also the environments changed. And that led then to more or less a complete re-implementation of the Dynatrace uh, platform because we saw that there is just so much data available that it's really hard to manually analyze it. So you, asking the right question and knowing what data to look at was really hard. And back then we were training a lot of people how to use a monitoring tool and helping people how to understand monitoring, how to do explorative analyze, analysis, how to use monitoring tools to find problems, optimize your architecture. And at some point we said, well, why don't we automate this? We're teaching people actually always the same things. It's a process that can be taught to pretty much every technologist, every person that's out there. So why can't we teach software to do it automatically for us? Um, and as part of this, this re-implementation, that's where we then started to implement machine learning and another AI algorithms into Dynatrace to automatically find the root cause, to automatically find changes in the environment, correlate them to certain events in the environment, like a new deployment, a change of user behavior, comparing different releases to each other, looking everything that is connected by building a real-time model of your application. So pretty much everything the human operator would do or an architect would do, but trying to automate as much as possible of this analysis process. Interesting back then, I remember some of the first demos we did of this new platform. Our customers and early users told us back then, but if you already know what the problem is, so like you have these algorithms built in that does automatic root cause analysis. So it finds the technical root cause of a problem. So very high level, we look at all of the dependencies in your application. Then there is a semantic model that um, Dynatrace understands. For example, that the slowdown of a service is related to the resources it's consuming. And if services have <coughs> dependencies we would also understand that like one, if one service slows down and another one is dependent on it, that it, it slows down, that there is a, call, a causal dependency in there. Obviously, the bigger the environment, the, the less obvious these things are, are to see. So we did this and then our customers said, well, if, if you already know what the problem is, why don't you fix it? And back then when we started, why don't you fix it was a really hard question to answer. You knew what the problem was, but there was, this was before the, I mean, the very early days of infrastructure as code. So fixing an environment was like really hard because they were so diverse and a lot of was still manual deployment. So it was hard to, to achieve this. But then with the rise of um, 
Kubernetes infrastructure as code and these automation platforms, it became much easier. And uh, this is also what we can see today. So we're now moving from that very initial problem where it was really about collecting the data, collecting it efficiently towards automatic analysis and now automating processes on top of it, what we refer to as uh, data-driven automation. So the idea is if you find, for example, that the uh, problem is that you have uh, a C the CPU is exhausted for a certain deployment in, in Kubernetes, we would automatically trigger a run book um, that would scale up this deployment, for example, or if there are other issues that you make changes to the environments automatically. So that's, I think, the, the short story of uh, almost uh, 15 years of, of evolution from data collection to, to automation that we had in Dynatrace. And let's talk about the evolution of, of infrastructure more generally uh, over those 16 years that, that the company's been in existence. So you mentioned that the initial application deployment medium was was like a J2, J2E application, right? So over time, I think the deployment models have really expanded in terms of variety. A lot of it's containerization-based you know, a lot of it's cloud-based. The abstractions tend to be easier to work with and therefore easier to instrument. And to my mind, you can also do a lot more in terms of what you are building internally because of the rise of cloud infrastructure, because of the rise of infrastructure as code and better deployment mediums. So I'd love to know how how the company has changed in terms of its software delivery and go-to-market and kind of the, the product suite in parallel with that overall improvement, the, the improved evolution of where software has gone since those early days. In the very early days, we started, I think, as many software companies back then started, it was a very classic enterprise deep, deep deployment. So you downloaded the software, we installed it, you ran a, a, a separate database in combination with the software. And then you had to add your software agents. So we always had an agent-based technology that did automatic instrumentation of, of the application. But you kind of had to add them to your server scripts. Usually these were, and I was deliberately saying J2EE because this was really the, the early Java enterprise days. This was really before JEE that it later on became. And this was the first thing that people were struggling with, like where in the scripts do I add this? And we talk about these massive WebSphere scripts. And you had to, back then, for example, for a Java application, you had to add an environment variable to these scripts that were significantly long. And if you got it wrong, your JVM might simply not start up anymore. So your web servers might not start up. And it was really when the, the operators had to dig deeply into those files. We, we later on optimized it by automatically finding uh, the places for a lot of these technologies. But obviously, this was always kind of cumbersome to manage. And that's also why we then... The first thing we then did, also when, when we moved to the new Dynatrace platform, we did something very obvious that, that other companies at that time, like New Relic and others were doing as, as well. So we moved to a SaaS model. Because you have kind of like an inception problem if you deploy a monitoring pl platform. Because you have your application that's monitored by the monitoring platform and then the monitoring platform, which requires to have higher availability of the application, you would then again need a monitoring platform for. And you'd like kind of going into this exception inception model of, yeah, who's monitoring the monitoring platforms? And especially for customers, we, we started to say, well, we, we don't want to take care of that monitoring platform. So we switched to a, back then, very innovative 
model where we said you also you can buy SAS, which is more, more or less you just consume it via an API. You still have to install the agent in your environment, which is the only way to get the, the, the data directly out of the application and to instrument it. But the rest is done by us. And we also developed a managed version. It's more or less you get still on-prem deployments because even today we have customers who want us to deploy in an on-prem or in a dedicated environment that, that, that they want to run on. Think, for example, governments or highly restricted industries like healthcare. So they want to have a more or less shadowed lockdown environment that they run in. But what we did, we added our own remote management capabilities on top. So we are managing these clusters for the customers so that they don't have to hire additional people to run um, even these, these managed environments, which then brought us from an automation perspective in a situation where we had to manage the upgrades, the management, and the operations <coughs> of thousands of clusters where most of them were not running on our own infrastructure. We, we, we got the machines, but most of those machines did not belong to us. So they were the customer's environments. And again, these were still early cloud days. We so could run it perfectly fine on a cloud instance. We obviously running on cloud instances as well. But still, it was mostly operating system cloud instances. This was still before uh, really containerization kicked in and uh, we had environments like Kubernetes. With Kubernetes now, we had had an even greater or easier way to, to even install our software because suddenly we could use containers. So we have more and more of a homogeneous environment that we can install to. So suddenly there's this opportunity you can install on-prem or, or, or a software that you run dedicated in the customer's environment, very, very similarly to the, to the software that you run for your own SaaS environment. There are still differences. So it's not that it's really right once run anywhere you wanted to get, but it's getting very close. And also the deployment became much easier with operators in Kubernetes. It's much easier to deploy monitoring software, no, not just monitoring software, but any kind of software, because you can have operators that modify your deployments. You see it for other use cases as well, maybe a service mesh or tools like OPA and others. So then, and it's also easier to understand what the scripts look like. It's not that they're not slow, no flakes anymore, so in a, the, the nice thing about what we achieved, obviously in Kubernetes, but also with things like CloudFormation and similar approaches also exist with um, in, in Azure with ARM and so forth. We have a standardized declarative way how we can understand what is actually deployed and how we can interact with those environments. We can also use this as metadata. The, the early scripts where you where you were like remote SSHing into a machine and then just executing some, some, some shell scripts, you had to more or less discover or reverse engineer what the engineer writing the scripts wanted the environment to look like based on what is actually running in the environment. And now with this really declarative um, infrastructure as code or the de deployments as code approach, we know what the desired state is, which is what, like one of the, the great advantages of Kubernetes. We know what the actual state is. And obviously we can see the configuration drift. And based on this information, we can take much more informed decision whether the environment is doing fine or not, and how we would have to later on to change the environment to get better. Can, can we pause on that, on the operators and the uh, automatic remediation side of things? So so I've done a few shows about operators, and the extent to which I understand op Kubernetes operators is 
they're a way of defining how a certain application should run. So when you think about Kafka, for example, Kafka can run on top of Kubernetes and use Kubernetes to manage its replication strategy and manage its nodes and its processing and stuff. And through the operator, you can manage the common failures that might occur and describe to your application what the remediation strategies are. So I, I'd love it if you could tell me if I'm correct about what, like describing what an operator actually is. And assuming I'm correct, explain to me what, how the rise of operators or operator-like uh, technology, how does that benefit Dynatrace? Yeah, so I think your description very well matches what an operator is. So you have your desired state and then you have the reconcile loop, uh, that's what it's called, that checks the actual state of the system. And the operator more or less abstracts everything away that you don't have to need to know because it creates, in the, like Kubernetes language, you're using what's called a custom resource definition. So think of it as the main specific definition of what you want to deploy. So you you can write like a, a definition, you want to run a database-backed blog, or you want to run a blog, which means you most likely have a cache in front of it, you have a web server, you have a database, and you might have other things in there. But you don't really care about those what this, those things are because you just say, I'd like to have one blog. And the rest is really abstracted away from you, also from where it, when it's created, but it's also abstracted away from you how the thing can be upgraded. You think, I don't want to run version 1, I want to run version 1.2, and the system is supposed to figure out how to do this. And there's like multiple capabilities that operators do. So some of them just install, some of them help you to upgrade. Some of them look at this reconciliation loop and see, well, the way you're running it right now is not really ideal or some components are missing. I have to change the environment. And the next level would then really be is you're not reconciling at how many instances of my database do I want to have running or how many like web frontends do I want to have running and how should they be distributed? But you're starting to trigger on a different set of metrics like I want my response time to always be 200 milliseconds for my, my blog users or, or whatever it's supposed to be. So that, that's what you describe it and you want to have a system behind that that figures out how to actually achieve this for you. And depending how complex this environment is that you're managing, uh, the more complex these decisions might, might get. Because what does it mean that your response time should only be 200 milliseconds? Are you creating more cache instances? Do you need more database replicas, or do you need to scale up other things? So you need to have more knowledge about how the application works. And this is still an area where some operators do a reasonably good job, but where still a lot of innovation is happening, and which then perfectly ties into this, this idea where we go with monitoring, where we're not just like monitoring or, or even observability, but we want to get into this kind of like actionability part where we can change the environment because we know how it's supposed to look like then look at what we use as, as runbooks as code. I'll think of it like an ift, but for operators. The idea is as a, as, an, as a developer, I know if you change the configuration of some of the components of my service, it will behave differently. This can be feature flags, this can really be scale-ups, depending on what the service does. Just for example, the, the recent Fastly outage, you might define, well, if I can't reach my CDN, I might just switch to origin delivery, but I'm trying to cache it massively or I'm trying to reduce all images that I don't really need. So the developer, instead of writing a wiki page of a run book, they're writing it as code. And what the monitoring system and the automation layer can then do, it looks at what the actual problem is, 
checks it against, okay, what can I do to mitigate the situation? And then starts to either execute these actions automatically or propose them to the user. So it takes like this process that used to be manual and starts to automate it as good as it can. Obviously, this is not like a healing situation for everything. We're not making systems to run fully autonomously, but it can take a lot of these manual tasks out of the equation and only escalate to a, a human operator when it's really necessary. Great. Now, I'd like to relate this to a conversation about DevOps and site reliability engineering. And the whole DevOps SRE movement is still very young, and it's evolving very quickly. And part of the reason it evolves so quickly is because the state of the art in tooling has evolved really quickly. Like just over the last six years that I've been doing this show, we've seen a change in continuous delivery software, a change in container delivery, container management, and uh, just basically the entire tool chain changes every 18 months, pretty much. At least this, you know, the state of the art that's available and people adopt that at different rates. But I'd love to know from your perspective, as the tooling has evolved so aggressively, how has the change, how has the, the nature of the SRE or the, or the DevOps job changed? I think early on, when we talked about DevOps, it was a different conversation. It was just automating what is done manually. So very often it was, okay, don't SSH into a machine anymore. Plus, really looking at the culture that that the people had in, in their companies, where it was like really very often you had even like the dev team and the ops team in different buildings. Very often they were in different, not just organizational units, but different companies. There was very often, say, Bank X, and this Bank X had a separate company that was running operations, or it, it, they outsourced it to third parties. So the first... The first part of that movement was like really achieving more of this, like looking at the processes. And that's what they keep telling people. I mean, there's always this ongoing conversation. DevOps is not a tool question. DevOps is, is, is a process question. It is supported by tools to support your process. But, but early on, it was like, I think companies started to struggle to see that they couldn't really ship software anymore. And the idea of shipping more frequently than maybe every half a year, like really scared them. And they really massively had to, to, to rely on people to, 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 to do this. And they started obviously with CI/CD. I think a lot in the beginning was, well, we want to automatically be able to deploy an application. That for a lot of companies was a massive change because very often there was somebody who was still deploying the application. So again, going back to the J2E applications at that time, there was somebody going into the WebSphere console and uploading a new OR file and then rolling it out across the cluster. So the first step was really about automating manual processes just to increase speed, mostly on the on the delivery side. So that's where like whole well, suddenly CI/CD became the, the big mantra for all companies to move in that direction. Well, we then saw that people said, well, they can ship faster, but how do they ensure that they still keep up quality? So that's where testing still come in. And it's where not for, I say, smaller applications, but for very big applications, automated testing and taking decisions on top of the test results was still a big issue, uh, especially for those applications in large enterprises that have massive dependencies on applications that might have been around since the 1970s. 
And still the goal was just making it faster, being able to move to increase your release cycle because they wanted to faster react to to, to customer demand, which just felt that they wanted that they didn't want just to have like like two releases, three releases a year. And when they failed, it was always a massive problem. And it also didn't feel great for developers. It's it's not fun uh, to work in an environment where you see the results of your work maybe half a year later. Then you realize that nobody actually wanted what you had. And also back then, other companies were challenging them to be fair. So for me, that that first wave was very much about accelerating. Now, when you start to accelerate, I think that's the second phase that we're in. If you look at tools that came in and when we started to talk about uh, uh, progressive delivery suddenly and uh, uh, terms like GitHub, yeah, we, we do this automatically, but we also automatically check whether it actually works. And then we take countermeasures. So taking more the day two operations concepts into account. Um, as well, automating also more of those, those cases because the problem with speed is it's great that you're faster, but your frequency of change changes and your processes that you had to manage these environments no longer obviously works that well either. If you're deploying three or four times a year, a multi-tier replication out of five tiers, it's totally different. If you do then comparing deploying two or three times a day, 300, 400 microservices. And obviously there's environments that are much bigger. So you also have to automate this process. How do you deal with this increased velocity? And that's, I think that's also with the SRE practices. That's also what I saw internally at Dynatrace. You need this conversation be, between the site reliabilities and their developers how they best build applications in a way that they can be easily run and easy to manage and not meaning that they become classic ops teams again and running them for the development teams but it is a different skill set just like it's a different skill set to do UI, something completely different to do ux design than it is to, to build a web application while many web developers might have user experience know-how or skills they're not ux designers and the same is kind of like from a dev perspective, developers might understand what it means to run apps in production, but the people who do this every day, who have seen massive outages, who have been through all of these situations, can give you a different type of input on how to work in, in this environment. And for, for me right now, it's, it's way more in this day two operations focus that we talk about automating more, trying to experiment more, feeling more comfortable in situations where companies are like really moving fast and, and fast is by the way for me different from what, what everybody out, out there and what's what's convenient for them because sometimes when we're working with customers they ask us so how many releases should we have per day so you, you're asking the wrong question it's not this is not like a contest like i'm doing 15 releases <laughs> you doing 25 releases uh, and you win and i'm always telling can you release when you want to release and do you feel comfortable releases and can you make sure that your customers are not impacted when you're getting it wrong? That That's the question that you should ask yourself. Not is it 10, is it 15? Or... I, I, I don't know if you know, I, I actually just, uh, I'm publishing a book called Move Fast uh, on, on July 6th. I spent about two and a half years writing it. And the whole premise of the book is is around, I mean, it's, it's a study of how Facebook builds software, but the whole premise of the book is around 
why and how you should move fast as an organization. And and as you said, it does not have to do with with these uh, like vanity metrics in terms of how many times you can release software per day. It's more about does the company feel agile? Does the company feel like the product development cadence is fast enough? Yeah, I have a very interesting anecdote here. When we started also to move into this very fast release cadence in the early days, when we built our next generation product, we for a short period of time switched away from these like very frequent deployments that we were running. This were just some internal things we wanted to work on and we said, let's not release it, let's wait a bit longer. And then something very interesting happened. So the same developer he used to work with and we're constantly releasing, so yeah, he was showing me some changes there, let's push it out. And suddenly he went silent and said, what, what, what's the problem? Yeah, it feels weird right now. I said, why, why does this feel weird? We have been doing this for so long. Yeah, but we haven't done it the last couple of weeks and suddenly it starts to feel weird. So I think this like this whole process of, of releasing things, things that work perfectly, taking them back, like having all this in place is also almost like working out. I mean, you can't stop working out, but you will see the effects at some point. So it's not just being fast for the sake of being fast, but making things that are usually exceptional. Something that you continuously do and the team feels highly comfortable doing. Like back to the very early days, a release was something highly uncomfortable for people to do. Because they were doing it two or three times a year. And maybe it's not just, I mean, I like the idea of move fast. For Cloud Foundry, somebody once was moving, wearing a t-shirt for one of my presentations that move fast and don't break things. So against the Facebook mantra, it's also good to not break stuff. So I think it's do what you need to do well frequently. Practice what keeps your business running and what is an important practice in your in- in environment. And I think that that's, that's another aspect of like this increased speed and, and, and velocity that you want to see well beyond like all of these other activities. If you're not doing it frequently, you won't feel comfortable doing it. Okay, so we're, we're kind of talking about changes in the management science of software where the expectations these days are to be moving much faster than we were moving 16 years ago when, when Dynatrace was started. Just the the expectations by employees within a company are that the product releases are going to be more more fast and the best employees are, are going to want to work at that kind of place. Now, in the midst of that change, you continue to release products, you continue to, to have new advances in what your customers are going to be getting in terms of software that allows them to move faster. And one of those things is cloud automation. So in the midst of thinking about the elements of DevOps, where you have these well-understood abstractions of continuous delivery pipelines, Kubernetes, infrastructure as code, and just monitoring, the kind of monitoring that is at the the core of, of Dynatrace's product DNA, explain what the cloud automate like the vision for cloud automation is what part of the devops journey are you trying to build within with your cloud automation the the idea of cloud automation really go, goes back to this as i mentioned before these early days when people were telling us if you know what the problem is uh, why don't you fix it or if you know that the environment is not behaving in a way why don't you change it so traditionally monitoring tools were just looking at data and giving you 
dashboards and may maybe some webhooks and so forth, but they were not really actively part of this control loop. Or they hadn't it fully implemented. It was always some tool that you put on top to have this end-to-end -end control loop. One example is if you test in, in a pre-production environment or even run some, some load tests in dev or in a shadow deployment, whichever stage you're at and what, what your preference is, you kind of run those tests, but then you need to feed this back into yet another system and the system might then decide, is this release doing fine? Is it not doing fine? And then change the environment. The same thing for when things break in your environment and you figure out what potentially breaks. And these were always custom built environments. Like these were these automation platforms that people were building on top of their monitoring data and other data sources. So security obviously plays, plays a role here as well and, and, and business data as well. So like conversion rates, you might like do an A-B test. Not, not so much different here. You look at business data, but not performance data or, or other metrics. And then decide to change the behavior of this, um, this environment. But what we realized is that most of these are like all one-off platforms. Like everybody that wants to get into this environment and into this uh, situation, they're starting to build their own custom-built platform. Like, let, let's build a platform where we integrate 15 tools together that they eventually orchestrate them and, and make them work together. And while we saw this and we were doing the first uh, implementations um, together with uh, uh, with our customers, we thought, this, there must be a better way to do this. I mean, basically, we're doing all the same things, but we're just doing them differently over and over and over again. And also, people were kind of misusing tools for purposes that they were never built for. It's like the story of using Jenkins for pretty every type of automation just because you can. And there's nothing wrong with Jenkins. It was just built for a very specific purpose as a CI tool. It was built to build software. But then we had continuous delivery, continuous deployments coming in. Then we switched to progressive delivery where we take decisions based on information we get of the environment. And then we move into Rumble with automation. Suddenly everything is done with the same tool and like kind of cobbled uh, together. So we decided that let's build and not just replace the individual tools, but let's build an orchestration platform on top that properly orchestrates those tools based on the data that tells us how the system is behaving and then automatically taking the right actions. That's more or less the idea behind cloud automation. It's just ensuring the end-to-end -end flow of software and keeping it up and running but building it in a way that's uh, reusable and reproducible. So what, what came out of this is an open source project, Captain, which is more or less the, implement, the open source implementation of uh, all of this, this automation, where we also started to standardize events or to create standardized event definitions. So today, if you want to use a testing tool, you want to use a uh, deployment tool, you want to use many other tools, you're always coding against a proprietary API. And they kind of all do the same thing, just slightly different. And we said, like, okay, let's start to standardize on what, what those building blocks are that are pretty much the same everywhere. And then just translate to the tools and then work with the tool providers to provide a more uniform view on this. Interestingly, we started this a bit more than two years ago, and now there is this initiative going on in the Continuous Delivery Foundation with SIG Events, where they now made it the primary charter of a whole um, now six or special interest group or before working group to exactly standardize this. So that it's easier for me to exchange tools and define my processes independently of tools and have this 
choreography layer on top. And this is what, where we want, what we then took with cloud automation, where we bundled everything together, the automation piece, the data collection and analysis piece, which more or less enables you to build systems that scale to very large environments, very high deployment frequencies, very large teams working on them without having to scale it with the operational load on, on the other hand too, because you could automate most of those tasks in, way, in an easy way and also in a way that you can plug and place components that you need for automation. So what you're trying to do here is, is pretty ambitious and I want to break down how it works to to some extent. So uh, I think it's key to understand the open source project kept in and, and particularly what you said about events. So an open format for events. Can you describe in more detail why the open source project is important and why it's important to standardize events, how that event standardization works to facilitate this kind of automatic remediation platform? The reason why we built it open source was two reasons. First one was we wanted to really work with the community because some of these are like very evolving practices that we're looking at it. I mean, continuous delivery, we are more in like industry agreement how it should work still. If you look how blue-green deployment done, depending on which tool it is done, it is still done slightly different. But once you start to combine day one and day two opera operations, so the delivery and then the remediation piece, there's very little out there in the market that, that does actually both. And auto remedy ideation is still in its, its early phases. So we decided let's work on something that we can work on together with the community and take this automation and make it available. And we built it on a number of assumptions. So we look at how it's done mostly today, which is scripts and workflows. Again, most of the automation we had to ship applications to, to your earlier questions, how DevOps tools changed and we have for operations are built on the assumptions that we're releasing infrequently and only a very small number of components. And we're driving it these days even to more extremes where with FeatureBlex, different people see different versions of the applications and most of these tools are not built for like this complexity. So the idea was build an automation platform that looks exactly the same way as your software stack looks because that makes your deployment artifacts the same. So every service has its own deployment strategy. It has its own remediation strategy. So to make smaller building blocks that you can combine at runtime. Because what you will see with specifically talking about the remediation piece, I wrote a blog article a while back about what I call like micro operations, like operations for microservices. You can't write like this one big runbook for a microservice environment. You have to, you can like change like one component, but it might have impact on two or three other components of your environment that you then need to change. An example would be, say, we have an application and it just the newest release creates more database queries. So your database is kind of slowing down because it's the query load is just too heavy. So one step might be to scale up the database nodes, but the developer might have also decided, well, then cache information that we don't need to query from the database in real time. So you might go for that caching approach. As you go for that caching approach, you then realize, well, there's now way more load on our Redis caches. So we now need to scale up our Redis caches. Or we start to scale at the front end. So the more building blocks you have that are influencing each other, the more complex these operations workflows get. So you can't put them in a script 
it's more the smaller bits and pieces that you then need to orchestrate and bring together at at runtime. So the goal was to build your automation logic the same way you build your application. And, and why do you now need to um, to standardize on the events? So what the events do, they more or less take steps in the software development lifecycle. This might be trigger a deployment to my development, my production environment. I'd like it to be a blue-green deployment. And here is the artifact I want to get deployed. And only if all my SLOs are met, I want to keep the deployment running. That's the advice I give to the platform. Pretty much to that same, same idea where we had more, working more declaratively how this happens. So I can define all of those processes independently from the tools I use. I can define a software delivery process that's the same for the entire company. I say, like these steps always have to happen, but different departments might choose, uh, still choose different tools that they want to use, either because of preference or technical necessity, depending on which technology you use, you might still simply use different deployment tools, uh, different testing tools uh, whatsoever. And the idea is to decouple that what should be done, like the flow or the sequence of events or that what the process looks like, from the how it should be done, like which tools you're actually using. And the interface between those two are the events. So you're more or less that one, that uh, orchestration engine is emitting event, I want you to deploy to this environment. I want you to run a functional test. I want you to run a performance test. I want you then to propagate this environment in a blue-green fashion to the next level uh, or to, to the next stage uh, in the environment. And then people can plug in uh, tools that they're using. There are several advantages to this. The first one is, when we talk to big banks, is governance and auditing. So you can define a process that you're fine with as an entire company without having to look at all the individual scripts that are running. I remember talking to a customer and said that they have to, for compliance reasons, they validate every single script that's deploying something in production or that's automating something, which is a nightmare to maintain. And, and quite frankly, you never really know because these scripts get like, incredibly long, like thousands of lines of, uh, of code. And there's also very little reusability. So you start just coping like one script over to the other, and then you're changing two or three files. We, we did even an internal study at Dynatrace where we looked at how much overlap we had in individual deployment scripts. So one goal is to separate this, what the process looks like, which in Captain we call a shipyard file. This just defines the sequences of how things should happen. And then we decide which tools we want to use, which we load at runtime and add in there. This allows us, for example, to react additionally to a deployment file. Think of it that way. If I want to decide that after a deployment, I might want to run a security scan, I would have to touch each individual delivery pipeline to run that security scan. Well, in this case, I'm just describing to that deployment event with a specific tool and it will run across all of my deployments that I'm running. I can also way more easily uh, modify how an environment should behave if I have like this this process that I'm reusing, like this, this in our case, the shipyard definition. An example is you are running an e-commerce shop. During the year, you're totally fine to run experimentations whenever you want. So like you can do A-B tests on whatever you want. But during Black Friday and Cyber Monday, you most likely shouldn't experiment with your application too much because that's when you're making most of your revenue. So the, the idea here is usually you would then have to touch all of those pipelines 
or you're sending out an email telling people, please don't deploy right now, if you have it fully automated. In this case, it would just change that one configuration and it would be deployed across the environment in seconds and then you simply switch it back. And the last advantage is separation of concerns. If you look at the standard, whether it might be Jenkins or any other tool out there, you have the process in there, you have the tools in there, and you have details that the developer puts in there. It's basically three people working on one file and you have no separation of those concerns and people can more or less interfere with each other. By separating this out into individual artifacts, it's way easier to manage as well. But I agree, it's, it's a mouthful what we're, what we're trying to do there and it, it's kind of like a new approach on, 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 on how to, to deal with this. But we see more, more and more interest in like this event-driven declarative approach of day one and day, day two operations that we're working here with. Well, the event-driven model, the configuration-driven model, declarative model, is it, it seems to be the direction that the entire software industry is moving in, whether you're talking about back-end or front-end. Uh, React, looks, React on the front-end looks in, looks in many ways very similar to this, this sort of declarative model. And it should be possible, you know, if not today, then soon, for more and more of our software to be self-healing and to be declarative, just easier to work with. I feel like today we, we still are dealing with lots of problems in software that we shouldn't be dealing with that are the result of infrastructure drift or, or just avoidable bugs. And so, you know, as you're developing this this vision, which is to to have more of your cloud infrastructure be automated and fewer fewer problems you have gotten involved in the CNCF yourself the cloud native computing foundation which is at this point i would say as impactful on the direction of uh, applied distributed systems as linux is for like single node operating systems so the CNCF is is tremendously influential i'd love to know what your engagements with the CNCF have been and what kind of picture you're getting for the future of, of distributed application development. So our involvement in in the CNCF started in a very different area, an adjacent area, one, one that makes a lot of sense for Dynatrace, but this was around uh, back then the, the Open Telemetry project. So this obviously made a lot of sense for a monitoring or, or observability company to be part of open open telemetry and we worked with lots of people in there uh well before open telemetry but as we then moved more into the application the delivery space um i was then part of the the team that was proposing why we should have an app delivery working group uh, back then it was a, a sig in the cncf so the cncf recently renamed six into tags main reason was because kubernetes has six and it was just some confusion so it's not a technical advisory group that specifically deals how to deliver and operate applications. So this was something we founded a while ago. I'm uh, still co-chairing this initiative where we look exactly into like problems like this. How can we build systems that are easier to deploy? How we can bring tools together? A lot of discussions right now are how can we, for example, build composable or co cooperative delivery platforms? Where we can link tools together i want to like take for my continuous delivery this tool for validation i want to take another tool for monitoring i want to take another tool i want them to work together i want to pick best and breed and i want to exchange them as i go which is like super hard that's also like back to the events 
because all of them are running proprietary APIs that I would have. So we started to work in there and then for us it was kind of like natural when we were working on Capnet. At some point we decided, okay, if you really want people to use this and collaborate with them on it, we should do it in a way that the overall industry expects us to do this and to make it fair. And we also saw that as we talked to customers, they wanted to have the security that or a certainty that yeah, we want to be able to actively influence this because we're building it in-house. We want our things to make it in there. And we said, well, then let's donate it to a foundation. It was open source already before. Said, let's donate it to a foundation. It's no longer purely controlled by Dynatrace. Everybody can uh, contribute. Everybody can actively influence uh, the direction, which then led to the sandbox uh, submission there. And, and since then, we just started in this ecosystem, which also made a lot of sense for us because that's where all of the other tools that we are interacting with kind of like we're living as well and it, it allowed a lot of in integrations and we have seen a lot of great things happen like one of our collaborations was learning chaos engineering so chaos engineering tools like litmus actively approaching us and working together how we can more easily integrate chaos engineering back to the, to the idea of having like these declarative platforms how can they bring chaos engineering into my delivery process without anybody having to touch any pipelines, but still ensuring that these applications would work fine in production or even taking it a step further, what we did, but we said, well, we have these runbook automation scripts that usually nobody ever tests. So what people usually do with those runbook automation scripts, they say, well, let's see whether my scale-up script actually scales up. But people rarely test whether it solves the problem in the application, why you want to actually scale up. And even if they do it, they do it once. It's not like a continuous testing of these environments. So we use chaos engineering to more or less have a test-driven operations approach where we uh, automatically validate whether these remediations, uh, the self-healing actions actually work. And we're not trying it in production when things break. Also customers or, or people were super fascinated by building self-healing applications. I keep telling them people, self-healing applications are like the emergency slides on an airplane. I'm super glad that they're there on the airplane. I'm also super glad that I'm normally never seeing them. And that's the way how I have to think about remediation in productions. It's not your standard behavior that you deploy something that necessarily breaks. And maybe to round this up on the CNCF, it was just great engaging there because we wanted to build this ecosystem where all tools work easier together, focusing on cloud native tools. And that, that's how we got engaged, like with the chaos engineering tools, obviously with Kubernetes, with Argo. I'm now working with Falco on, on, on the security side. And like that, that's how these infrastructure components are built. And I think it's also the right way to build them because you build this into the core of your enterprise delivery platform and you want to have the security. This is built in an independent way and with like-minded people, you can evolve yourself. In, into this as well. And that's definitely what the CNCF and the governance model of the CNCF are providing there. Cool. Well, as we wind down, I think we've given a pretty good explanation for what Dynatrace is up to as a company and placing that company in the context of the broader software industry. Just to close off, I'd love to get your vision for how the future unfolds over the next five years or so in the DevOps world and how that's going to affect the, the product direction of Dynatrace? I think the industry is, is, is moving towards more of a platform idea. 
And I'd, li I'd like to see a lot of the tooling become more and more of a commodity. Like you would assume that is the end goal, I think for all of us should be provide platforms that make it easier to ship innovation fast, which is like very high level. So the idea is we should as developers feel safe to commit code without having to understand the entire process end to end. And at the same time have this, uh, have the confidence that there are safety measures in place that in case we have deployed something that does not work or that does not behave properly, the system can, um, or the platform that you have from a delivery perspective can can deal with it and try to, to remediate as much much as possible. A while back used to, like an analogy of like self-driving uh, IT or self-driving applications, which kind of, I liked it because it also has like different degrees of how self driving actually work like from taking over one function to taking over multiple functions to human intervention only being the, the, the exception there because the big problem that that i see is i'm quoting one of my favorite books here like team topologies and one key component component of team topologies beyond the platform concept that we discussed right now is also cognitive load we always wanted developers to do more first we wanted them to write code, which was great. Then we wanted them to do testing as well, which obviously made a lot of sense that developers write their own tests. Then we started to have them define infrastructure. Now we want them to take over operational responsibilities. Now we want them to manage platforms. So the, the scope just gets bigger and wider. I think that there is value in this idea, you build it, you run it, which is more as you build it, you take responsibility for it and you understand the processes end to end. But at the same time, as an industry, we are complaining that we don't get enough people to build all the software innovation that we want to get. And th these two don't fit together. We can't expect people who we want to spend more time on building business differentiating functionality to also take on more roles that usually were done by other people in the organization. So that's why my vision is, I think we want to bring things closer together. We will build more interdisciplinary tools that can work better together. But a lot of this like repetitive work just to get things out there, we need to more commoditize this. We shouldn't be talking about it, it shouldn't be a key concern. Like if I want to have a blue-green deployment with three stages and it automatically validates on five criteria that I'm specifying, I want the thing just to work exactly what I said and not have go to my engineering productivity team, to my DevOps team, to my recipe team, whatever the company calls it, to first build this and then I'm getting it later. Or then somebody has to manage it, it, it as well. So I want a lot of these like delivery and operations platform to really appear in the in behind the scenes and it's just there and we stop thinking about them. Maybe like people now start talking about like Kubernetes becoming boring. It might be like software delivery itself, like really and operations like really be becoming super boring and to be fair there are or there have been initiatives in this area for quite some time when we think about serverless and some other concepts that are emerging that take more and more in of this into the platform and exposing less and less of this complexity so that's the vision that i have and where i see dynatrace fitting in we always need this to be data driven we need to automatically drive decisions and drive automation and automation works better the better your data is doing automation on faulty or incomplete data does not lead to, to good automation. And our goal is really to provide the best quality data to do the best analysis of this data. 
so that you can build high quality automation on top and obviously allowing this to do seamlessly and, and, and easy and quickly that this does not become a massive uh, integration project by itself. Wonderful. Well, Alois, thanks for coming back on the show. It's It's been a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, thank you for having me.